Okay, everybody, we're going to get back together. Um, the text that we are going to be studying today is Acts 7, verses 1 through 60, and we are going to have two of our members reading this passage today because it's 60 verses. It'll be Andrew Appel and Wes Allen, no relation to me, but um, brothers in Christ. Uh, just another thing, we'll ask everybody to stand for the reading of the word. And if you do get tired because it is 60 verses, feel free to take a seat and to relax and just listen. Acts chapter 7. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in the land belonging to others, who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt but God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan in great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt, until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand and on the following day he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, and of Isaac, and of Jacob. And Moses trembled, and did not dare look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their groaning. And I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt 
and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god, Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon." Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as, he, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they, when they dis, dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they had heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. This is the word of the Lord. Well, welcome to Maranatha. Um, It's good to be with you all. We are looking at Acts 7, 1 through 60, as the guys just read through. Um, A lot of stuff here. It's interesting. When David had asked me to uh, preach this, I was very hesitant just because it is such a big passage. And to try and pull all the thoughts together and everything when you're going through and studying the Word and making sure that you have it very succinct and clear. Um, It was just something that was a little bit daunting, but um, I thought about it a little as I read through the passage. And Stephen, when he goes before this council, is full of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't have notes. He didn't have time to prepare. He is thrown before them. And Stephen allows the Holy Spirit to unleash everything that needs to be said and done. And as I thought about that, I I told David, hey, give me a week, maybe two, um, just to (laughs) try and see if I was really wanting to do it. And uh, after just thinking about it and praying about it, I thought, man, you know, Stephen was so in tune with God that he, there was no fear. And he just went in and, and said what needed to be said by the power of the Holy Spirit. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to do it. I'm going to take this on and, and do this. Um, so I'm just going to ask if we can pray one more time, and then I will get started. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you uh, for your word. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, uh, for his death, burial, and resurrection. We are thankful that he is 
seated at the right hand of God. Uh, Father, we are thankful for your spirit who resides in us and gives us wisdom and understanding, helps us to understand the very word that I am uh, about to preach. Lord, I pray that um, hearts would be open, that we would be ready and willing to receive what it is that you would have us to know in this text of scripture. Lord, we pray that we would see the beauty of your uh, plan that you set out and the plan that you accomplished and uh, that it will come to an end. Um, Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for being a God who goes before us and has done all the work for us. Lord, we give you all the praise and all the glory. Amen. So last week, uh, David was in Acts 6, and we know they were trying to capture Stephen, just kind of getting him, they're debating him, basically, is what they're trying to do. Um, and just kind of how Stephen now is before the council, what had happened then is when they were debating him in verse 10 of chapter 6, they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Stephen was so filled with the Spirit, they could not say anything that could throw him off. They couldn't stumble him at all. He knew what he was talking about. So from that, they can't debate with him. So then they move to instigate men to say that he has blasphemed against God and against Moses. And then they rile up the people, the scribes, the elders, and what they do is they seize him and they bring him before the council. And then within that, they have some false witnesses that they've made. And what they have them do is speak some other nonsense, basically saying that he's spoken against the temple and he's spoken against the law. And then they, they twist words that Stephen had said. And, and David alluded to this, basically saying that, Jesus of Nazareth would destroy the temple. And that's not what Christ said. We know in uh, John 2.19, Jesus answered them and said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Um, then the Jews said, it's taken us 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. They missed it again. They didn't realize that Christ was talking about his body. Um, so they tried to get him in trouble for that. And we also know that they were trying to peg the law on him and that Christ was going to replace that law of Moses. But we also know in, um, that Jesus didn't come to abolish the law but to fill it. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is probably the greatest sermon in the Word of God. It is Christ just bringing the full gospel. And... So now they, they have Stephen before, and, and it just, my cynical spirit kind of chuckles at this because the high priest, who was probably Caiaphas still, he was around till A.D. 36, he says just a couple of simple words, is this so? Are you seriously going to ask this guy, is this so, who has just debated everybody, and they can't get anything against him, but he does. He asks him, is this so? And what does Stephen do? Stephen starts off with this. Just note, brothers and fathers, hear me. Stephen is within a realm of Jewish people. He starts off with brothers because he is a Jew himself. And fathers, he shows respect to the older generation. But then he talks about um, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. And what I want us to see today is what Stephen's defense is, is against the, the view that Stephen will present is what he believes in God and Moses, the law and the temple. Because that was the charges that were brought to him, is that you have blasphemed God, you've blasphemed Moses, you've blasphemed the law, and you've blasphemed the temple. In the bigger context, which I would argue what this chapter is really about, is that the God of glory is glorified, Christ is exalted, and it's done through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what I believe the passage is about. In the midst of all of this, that's the greater theme. 
So, within Stephen begins really probably one of the greatest apologetics, if you want to call it that. That's a defense of it. But he also goes on the attack, as we'll see throughout this. But Stephen, again, takes them to um, the, the glory, the God of glory. And he starts out by saying the God of glory. And, and this is pretty interesting because we have to understand, Stephen, while he's in front of all these people, there isn't anger. He isn't upset. At the end of the last chapter, he had the face like an angel, right? Um, and he's in complete control. He understands the very plan of God and is going to remind them and bring forth what that plan pointed to, which was the very Messiah. And he's going to give a history lesson. And in that, throughout that whole plan, God is glorified through the covenant given to Abraham and the fulfillment of that covenant. And then he's going to point to Christ being exalted, the very Christ that they killed. And he's going to do this all by the power of the Holy Spirit. So the very God of glory makes the covenant with Abraham. And who is this God of glory? Um, Psalm 29, 3 says this, The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders the Lord over many waters. God is not bound to a particular place. And this opening statement kind of corresponds to Moses' account of God's dwelling among the Israelites in the tent of meeting and him, his glory, filling that. Uh, listen to Exodus 40, 34 through 35, because what Stephen does here is really sharp. He addresses his, his reverence to God, his respect of Moses, and his reverence of the temple all in one little thing. Exodus 40, 34 through 35 says this, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now we know that this God of glory went to Abraham, and he told him, Look, you're going to go and, to a land, and I'm going to show you where you're going to go. And... You're not really going to get much of it, but your offspring will have that possession. And that inheritance, that promise was to Abraham and his offspring. God told him that your offspring are going to be sojourners in a land where they're going to be under uh, captivity and slaves. And for 400 years, this is going to go on. And then I'm going to bring him back to this land. So he then tells Abraham that God's going to be the one who judges the people of this land. God is going to be the one who's going to send the person to do it. God's going to be the one who's going to do the wonders and the miracles through someone else. And God is going to be the one to bring them back to worship him. God gives Mo or Abraham the covenant of circumcision, which we know is very important to the Jewish nation. And that is given to every male child. We know Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of the patriarchs. And we see the, how Stephen moves this along very slowly, and it's very subtle, so you've got to pay attention to it. As he's bringing up these great patriarchs and uh, Joseph and Abraham and Moses and the oracles of God. But as he's doing this, he is slowly moving them and indicting them along with the people of Israel, the, the forefathers. So the patriarchs, which we know when Joseph had his dream, and when he dreamed his dream, he went and told his brothers, hey guys, you're going to bow down before me. Brothers didn't like that. He did it a second time, and Jacob ended up remembering it in his heart. But in reality, I reckon most of us would have an issue if your little brother came to you and said, hey, you guys are all going to bow down before me. 
I would not like that. <laughs> but what God did is God moved within the hearts. And they sold Jacob or sold Joseph into slavery. And within that slavery, they thought they were rid of him, but God brings about a deliverer for the people of Israel. Um, with Joseph, God showed him favor within the famine, and he was forgiving to his brothers. And in the end, Joseph saves the people of Israel and brings them all to Egypt. The brothers, he forgives them all. The dad, everybody is there. So Israel is saved because the famine, they didn't have no food. And so, again, God brings somebody in to redeem the people. Um, listen to this, just Genesis 45, 4 through 9. And here's what I want you to remember is, it is God being glorified in all this. God is driving this plan. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. <laughs> Interesting. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over the land of Egypt. Hurry up, go get go to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. It's God moving in this whole plan. But understand this, Joseph is a type of somebody else that he's pointing them to. A type in the New Testament, and we know that to be Christ. Okay? So while the people are there in, in Egypt, they grow and they multiply. Um, and as the time of the promise draws near, the new king didn't know Joseph, and uh, he didn't know the people. He, he treated the people of God very poorly. Um, but the very God of glory that told Abraham, I'm going to put him into savory, and then I'm going to bring him back out, begins to move in his plan. The, Israel, the Israelites cried out for help, and God heard them and remembered his covenant. And this is just Exodus 2. 23 through 25, I just ask you guys to go and reference that because I don't want to um, read this section, but it's, it's God hearing the call of his people and making the decision. That's Exodus 2, 23 through 25. So, in God's providence is evident in saving Moses while the other infant males were being slaughtered. You know, the king had tried this a couple of times. First, he told the midwives, hey, get rid of them. And the midwives made up some excuse that these Israelite women, they are awesome at having babies, and they have them before we can get there. So they can't do it. And so then he just tells them, look, find them and, and, and kill them. Throw them into the Nile River. But God providentially provides and saves Moses. Moses, in turn, is adopted by Pharaoh's daughter and becomes a son and is educated in all Egyptian stuff. Moses is well thought out. He is mighty in word and deed, the word of God says. And Moses decides he's going to visit his brothers. And as he goes to visit his brothers, he sees uh, an Israelite being oppressed by an Egyptian, and we know what Moses does. Moses kills him. And uh, verse 25 and 26, Moses saves the Israelite, and then when he comes back to talk to his brothers, his brothers, what do they say to him? Who are you? Are you going to rule? Are you going to kill us too? It's interesting because Moses was trying to be a peacemaker. He was trying to make his brothers be at peace among them. But what did they do? 
They rejected Moses. So Moses fled for another 40 years. And then we know that God um, has... Um, we know that God goes back to Moses and tells him that um, you're the one who's going to go back to uh, Israel or to Egypt. So they reject Moses, which is a constant theme of Israel. Uh, and when he goes to Midian, he, he has a family. He begins a family. But in Exodus 3, that angel of the Lord, the theophany, the bush, and the angel of the Lord tells him, hey, Moses, I'm the God of Abraham. I'm the God of your fathers, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And I, I, this would just be crazy. Moses trembles, and he kind of shies away. And God tells him, take off your sandals. This is holy ground. And he tells him, I've seen the affliction of my people, and he's going to send the one that they rejected to go be the ruler and the redeemer of the people of Israel. So, you see, Moses and Joseph were both types of Christ. Um, I would also point out that this continued indictment against the Israelites continues to happen. They rejected. Now, Moses is going to go back and do what the Lord's called him to do. So, Moses would lead them out with many signs and wonders. Uh, verse 37 uh, in chapter 7 says this, This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Even Moses knew that there was a greater redeemer coming, right? There was no blaspheme of, of Stephen just reverence for God, reverence for the covenant, and the plan that was being fulfilled through Moses. Um, Joseph and Moses were both temporary in redeeming the people. Temporary. The one prophet that Moses spoke of would redeem the people once and for all. Moses was the mediator of the law. The very law that they're accusing Stephen of, Stephen points out, no, I have utmost respect for Moses and the law that he had because it was the very oracles of God that he got from God on the mountain. And listen to this, verse 38. Moses had been given the very oracles of God and the fathers refused to obey. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai. And with our fathers, he received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. In their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hand. The history of Israel has rejected God, Moses, and the very oracles of God. This is consistent. Um, so when Moses comes down and there is this calf, a golden calf that they're worshiping, and God is furious with them, and yet Moses is that mediator between the people and God. The Israelites desired gods, but not the one true God. Um, and because they didn't know what happened to Moses, they wanted Aaron to make up some gods for them that they could follow and go before him. So they make that golden calf, sacrifice idols, worship it, and rejoice at a golden calf. Um, again, their consistency of rejecting the very redeemers that he has sent, they ended up sacrificing to the calf, and that is... Um, something that I, I try to get my head wrapped around just trying to think of how you sacrifice to something that is handmade. I, I don't understand that. But, again, um, we're on this side of the cross. So, um, and God gave them up to worship the host of the heavens. Stars, moon, started out quietly, but they did all of that. Um, Stephen says that the fathers had the very tent of meeting in the wilderness. So, 
they had the, the, the tent tabernacle that God instructed Moses how to make, and it was overwhelming with the glory of God. Um, verse 44 says this, Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he spoke to Moses and directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Stephen says, I have nothing against God. God directed Moses who made the very tent tabernacle that was with us in the desert, our fathers in the desert. At night it was a fire, by day it was a cloud, and if it moved, they moved. If it didn't move, they didn't move. Um, the very place that they could dwell among themselves with God, and they now, as he's saying this, the Jews are around him, they know that they cannot deny the glory of God was present with our forefathers there because it shone through the tent and the tabernacle. But this was something ordained by God. We know that. We know that Moses built it through the people's hands that were gifted to do that. He gave Moses the instructions. God was uh, present with the people of Israel in the wilderness, but did God really need a tent or a tabernacle to be worshipped. And this is something that I, I was thinking about through this, is that God is omnipresent. God is everywhere. And they were trying to contain him to the temple, and that's what the Jewish people are doing. The, the, the temple that they're in right now, with this whole council of Stephen, isn't even the one that was built by the Jews. It was built by Herod. It, the, the other one's been destroyed. It was rebuilt and destroyed again. And then Herod built this one. But they are so focused on circumcision, the law, and the temple. And you've got to have the temple to worship God. And Stephen is trying to point out to them that even before the tent of the tabernacle was there, we were able to worship God out in the desert. You don't, you can't contain God there is no way to contain God. And we know that that tent of the tabernacle went with Joshua as he went in to take the nation. And Joshua was another type of our Savior. He was that type. And when he goes in and they take the tent of the tabernacle with him, and it stays with them, and then David, of course, wants to build it. But what does David known of david's known of blood and war and god says no it's going to be your son that's going to do it and so solomon builds the temple and listen to what solomon said though when he built this temple and this is from first uh, kings eight twenty seven. and solomon says this this is kind of his prayer of dedication to the temple he says but will god indeed dwell on the earth behold heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you how much less this house that i have built and then isaiah 66 1 and 2 which the guys read earlier says this heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool what kind of house will you build for me says the lord for what is the place of my rest did not my hand make all these things everything that you're using to make this temple i made that I made that. All of this has been orchestrated by God. It's all God ordained. God took them to Egypt to save them. God preserved them by bringing them back out of Egypt and saved them. He was the redeemer there. And, and then God took them to the promised land. And then what did God do? Well, it's interesting because you've got to hear in this I mean, it's a, it's a big, all Jewish people around, and they're hearing Stephen say this. And I imagine there was, it was quiet. I bet you could have heard a pin drop. And I'm still surprised that they just let Stephen keep going and going and going because he is slowly pointing that he loves God and the Word of God, and he's slowly saying, you fools missed it. And he's about to turn the tables on him. And when he does understand this and this is what i have really just meditated on this week and all of this is that stephen 
when he says what he says, he says it out of a heart of love. He says it truly out of hard love. And you see that at the end of the text. And I was thinking through the people who oppress you in this world and, and, and drive you angry. Um, I think there's certain sins that I don't like. And I don't like to associate with the people that have those sins. And there's certain sins that I don't want to want around my children. I don't want them around my wife. And I don't want to love those people there's a part of me in all honesty that sees the psalmist and says lord come back and cook them just take care of it because they are just blasphemers of you stephen doesn't do that and this is what i want us to catch church stephen is so filled with the spirit that these people and you will see this change when he points to them this change but in them, but not in Stephen. Stephen has the face of an angel. He is completely at peace. Stephen is a guy who is free in Christ. David mentioned it last week. He is totally free in Christ. He understands that God ordained this whole plan. He understands that the Redeemer came and died and is now in heaven, and he understands that the Spirit came and is dwelling within him. He's at total peace. He's at total peace knowing what he is about to do is probably going to rile some people up. So what does Stephen do? <laughs> well, Stephen unleashes the truth on him, and he turns the tables on him. Stephen says, I'm not the blasphemer. You are. You are. You're stiff-necked. You're uncircumcised of the heart. He just goes down a list. Listen to this list that he gives to them. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. They killed the prophets that were telling about Jesus, the Messiah, who would come in the future. And that righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it interesting because Stephen sounds a lot like Christ at the end of this chapter. Stephen, listen to what Christ says in Luke eleven forty-five through 52. One of the lawyers answered him and said, teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed, so you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers. For they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against, the generation, against this generation." From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. Chew. I sometimes think we get caught should we love should we not love what's that look like how do we answer people maybe we're just kind to everybody maybe we don't say the truth because we don't want to offend people stephen and christ they just said the truth and stephen says it because he loves those people do we do that are we scared i mean think about it 
He called them stiff-necked people. And I don't know how you view this, but I look at this as just that child that just holds tight, you know. And each one of us, most of the time, we get just one of them like that. And boy, did we have one like that. Goodness gracious, the Lord, thank you for teaching us humility and grace. But my son was the most stubborn, obstinate little kid I have ever dealt with. The other kids, you look at them, you tell them no. Yes, Dad. Yes, Dad. Yes, Dad. Yes, Dad. Him? And he'd just give you the stare down. And I just remember one day, and, and thinking through this, that's what all I could think of was like, man, just that defiant, like, I'm not going to kneel. I'm not going to do it. And I remember one day just working with Joshua. Me and Carla had been talking, and I talked to one of my pastors who I love dearly, and he said, spank him harder, Joshua. And I said, okay. So, I spanked him harder. He wasn't budging. And what we were trying to do is when Carla and I would discipline our kids, we'd discipline them and then we'd talk to them about it and then we'd tell them, you know, seek forgiveness and move on. We're not going to bring it up again because the cross sets you free of all that. And then it was a simple, yes, sir, or yes, ma'am. Yes, sir, buddy. Okay. Another little swat to get him to move on again. But he was defiant like this. And I remember when it finally broke, and I just had to chuckle because the Lord was working in his heart. But when he finally broke, and, and I'm looking at him, and I said, yes, sir, buddy. And I was tired of having to spank him and, and go through this routine. And he just looks up at me, and he's like, yes, sir. And I thought, well, we're moving forward. That's good. You know what? Praise the Lord, buddy. <laughs> but that's what they are. They're stiff-necked people they're uncircumcised in hearts and ears these people are the people that look like they got it all down oh i love god oh i love the temple oh, i love the law but i'm going to burden everybody else with it and i'm not going to practice any of it and when when uh stephen says this it cuts to the very core of them and and the the passage actually means that they were torn asunder it hit them so hard that circumcision and you telling them that they're uncircumcised by the heart and they don't love the law and you act just like your fathers it rended them it just ripped them to shreds and they were enraged by it and then what does stephen do <laughs> well now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. They are so mad and so angry. They want to get aimed. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. <laughs> he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, see the heavens opened and the son of man standing at the right hand of god but listen to how they reacted they cried out and this is what they did they cried out with a loud voice because remember this jesus of nazareth they didn't like him talking about this jesus of nazareth and i think this is really what sent them way over the edges here comes this jesus of nazareth again and he's telling them Behold, I see the very glory of God, and there is the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He's not seated, folks. This is one, the only time that you see Jesus is standing at the right hand of God the Father. Stephen's looking up at him, and these people are enraged at him. And they run at him, and they pick him up, and they throw him out. But when they run at him, they're doing this. Ah! like a little kid throwing a temper tantrum they are seriously because they don't want to hear no more they hate what they're hearing they grab him they cast him out in the city and they stone him and then they laid down their garments at someone's feet and usually what that meant is so they could throw the stones just a little harder I need to get a little more back into this they lay him down at someone's feet and it's a young man named Saul. <laughs> and then this. 
as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He echoes Christ again. And then he does it one more time. Falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And then, he, when he had said this, he fell asleep. I don't know about you, but that is powerful. Stephen was willing to give up everything because he understood the cross. He understood the God of glory. He understood that Christ was exalted and he got to see it at his death. He understood that he had the power of the Spirit. There was no fear in him. He was going to preach the gospel. And when he pointed out their sins to them, many of them, probably all of them, didn't hear it. But what is interesting is this. That Saul became the apostle Paul. And did the Lord use that time to plant that seed for Paul? We know that Paul, in the next chapter, he continues to, to crucify, or, um, uh, yeah, you know what I'm talking about, take care of the Christians. Um, but we've been talking in our study, we have that Bible study, uh, that a bunch of us guys get together, and we've been going through 1 Corinthians, and um, this just kept coming to me as I thought about it, of, man, we sometimes worry about who's hearing us. Are you willing to preach the gospel for 100? Are you willing to preach it for 50, 20, 5, 1? Are you willing? Because in 1 Corinthians, those first four chapters, and we've gone over it pretty exhaustively, and it's interesting because what Paul is trying to tell them, because there's, there's these groups, well, I'm for Apollos, and I'm for Paul. Well, I'm for Cephas. And Paul's telling them, no, guys, you're missing it. You're missing it. Whether you plant the seed or you're the one who waters the seed, it's all Christ that does the work. It's all Christ that does the work. Stephen preached the gospel there and went down in glory with a heart of peace and a face like an angel. He was totally at peace. He did not revile them. He did not lash out at them. He was willing to die for his Savior so that the gospel could go forth. And we know that the apostle, that Saul became the apostle Paul and moved mountains because of God's work in him. That that's something. I'll ask you this. Are you willing to suffer for Christ? Are you willing to suffer for Christ? And in those trials, when you're suffering, do you see the beauty of him throughout those trials? Let me encourage you. Trials are a good thing. They beat us down. They break us. But it makes me closer to my Savior. Every trial I've ever been through, I'm, I'm thankful for it as I'm back on this side of it, going through it. It's tough. But when you have the family of God come alongside you, you have no room but to grow in Him. Are you willing to do that? And are you willing to do it with a happy heart, knowing that that trial may never be finished on this side of eternity. Are you good with that? Is Christ so important to you that you would be willing to do that and say, I see the glory of God and I see Christ exalted. I'm ready to go home. Do you see his love, his great love, for you that he gave of himself. He didn't have to come for us. He didn't have to use any of us. But he does. And he did. And he did exactly 
what God said would happen in the Old Testament, and that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ when he got up on the cross. He died, buried, and was raised again. And when he went to heaven, it said that he was seated at the right hand of the Father. Remember this. God, Christ told us that the world will hate us because of him. Because when we love Christ and we live for him, the world will hate you. Listen to what John 15, 18 through 19 says. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But, because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. That's awesome. That is, that's awesome. To know that Stephen understood that. He knew that people would hate him. Didn't matter. He was going to preach the gospel because he can identify with his Savior. And lastly, John 16, I'll leave you with this. And I like the, King James, the new King James rendering a little better, but it says this, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace, in the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. The King J New King James says this, be of good cheer because I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we uh, thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for uh, just the patience of the people to hear the message, and we thank you for your spirit who is active in all of us. Lord, help us to meditate on what your word says. Help us to be uh, ready always to give a defense of the gospel. Help us to do it with such a heart that is so full of love that people would question our sanity. Um, Lord, I pray that you would just move in all of us, give us opportunities to share the gospel with those who need it, Give us opportunities to share the gospel with each other, that we might be encouraged and that we might live for you according to your will. We give you all the praise. Amen.